Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So... Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to himself, said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. 
bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. If you're new, uh, we've been tracking through the book of Acts, and we're back there again uh, this afternoon. So it's, uh, it's a good one, as we just heard. Thank you, Paul. It's a pretty action-packed uh, book. Uh, so a lot going on. There's life. There's death. There's worms. And there's our prayer life as well. So uh, it's going to be a good one. But before we get there, last week, uh, Dave Dean, he took us through what was happening um, at the end there of chapter 11 with the church in, in Antioch. And we were introduced to this new word for the book of Acts anyway. Does anyone remember what that was? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So you may have noticed uh, that as we're going through the, the book of Acts, we're working out this fulfillment of Acts 1.8, right? And as we do that, we kind of zoom out and we see the gospel spread and then we come back in and zoom back into to Jerusalem to see what's happening there as well with the church. So we're kind of zooming in and out, but all the time we're fulfilling this Acts 1.8 to the ends of the earth. So we zoomed out from Jerusalem last week with, with Antioch, um, and now we're going to come back in. Chapter 11, um, if you remember, finished up with this man named Agabus, and he was told by the Spirit there would be a famine in the land. And the church starts to, you know, swing into action and, and help out with that. So the church there in Antioch, we looked at what they were doing. Uh, this week, we pick up and, again, zoom in, and we have this Herod Agrippa, right? And he's persecuting the church, and we'll talk a bit more about him in a minute. Locking up and killing Christians, right? After chapter 12, we're going to change a bit of a focus, though, after that. For the most part, we're going to follow Paul and Barnabas, and then mostly just Paul for the missionary journeys. So this chapter, chapter 12, that we're looking at today, is a bit of a development um, and start. You know, we had the start of the church with Jerusalem, excuse me. Um, but it's going to change now, and we're going to focus on these two guys, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And this passage is, is pretty easily divided up into four parts. We've got Herod's persecution. We've got Peter's freedom. Herod's death, and then this sort of changing of hands over to Paul and Barnabas. And it's truly, a, it really is, as I was reading, it's a chapter of, of these contrasts, right? So on one hand, we might have James being martyred. On the other hand, we have Peter being freed from, from prison. We have the church praying for, for the release of, of Peter but then when he shows up at the door, they don't really believe that he's there, right? We have Peter struck on the side to, to wake him up and so that he can be delivered from prison. And we have Herod struck and he's killed. So God displays his, his power. And the other contrast is that Herod tries to exert his power as God. So really we have these contrasts, these, these back and forths, a bit of a, a roller coaster. But through it, we're going to see God's mercy and we're going to see God's judgment as well. But more importantly, what, what I hope you see, um, as I did, as I studied through, that despite the circumstances and also our level of understanding of those circumstances and in them, God is there and he's working things out according to his plans and his purposes. So let's pray 
and then we're going to tuck in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We thank you for, for the privilege to, to study your word, to read it here together, Lord, without fear of, of persecution, uh, like what we see just in our passage today. God, what a privilege that is. May we not take it for, for granted. Uh, Lord, may I be faithful to your word now, and may you be honored through it. In Jesus' name. So let's, let's talk about this Herod that we've got in, in the chapter today, in chapter 12, because there's a few Herods that we hear about in the Bible, right? So the Herod we have here is Herod Agrippa I, and he lived from about 9 BC uh, up until AD 44. He was the, the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the Bethlehem, Bethlehem children to be murdered, if you remember. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. This Herod, he was educated and raised in uh, Rome and reigned over Judea for, for several years. In AD 37, uh, Caligula allocated him the territory um, that had been held by Philip. He did not, however, assume control over the entire old empire of Herod the Great until about AD 41, because he was competing with Herod Antipas for authority. Full affirmation of his role um, was in AD 41 and was expanded to its maximum extent under Claudius, uh, who was actually one of his classmates. He ruled until AD 44, and the persecution uh, becomes more intense in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem church during his reign, right? Uh, Josephus, uh, who is a historian, a writer, um, we're going to hear a couple times from him today, but he writes this of Agrippa, and it's interesting given our passage today. So uh, Agrippa's temper was mild, and he was equally liberal to all men. He was humane to foreigners and made them sensible of his liberality. He was in like manner rather of a gentle and compassionate temper. Accordingly, he loved to live continually at Jerusalem and was exactly careful in the observance of the laws of his country. He therefore kept himself entirely pure, nor did any day pass over his head without its appointed sacrifice. It's insightful uh, what Josephus writes here about uh, Agrippa. He had a mild temper, I don't think it's really what we see in, in our passage today, but, you know. Um, however, you notice as well, and this is important, that Josephus writes that Herod was careful to observe the Jewish laws and sacrifices. See, Herod Agrippa, he wanted to please the Jews. And what was pleasing the Jews at this time in our passage? Yep, anything that would stop this church, these Christians, as we learned last week, right? So Herod Agrippa was okay if you're on his good side of, you know, his political agenda. And if you're on the bad side of his agenda, it looks like you're probably not going to be around too much longer. So we're going to start with, with James's death and, and Peter's arrest, right? Herod Agrippa is there. He's persecuting the church, pleasing the Jews. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
And I want you to notice that this here in chapter 12, it's a significant moment for the persecution of the church. Because you go back to to chapter 4, and you have Peter and John questioned and threatened by the religious leaders. Then some of the apostles are arrested in chapter 5, but an angel sets them free, pretty similar to, to what we see this week. And we had Stephen, a follower of of Jesus, martyred in chapter 7, which at that point marked the sort of the rise of Saul, who became Paul, persecution of the church. And then here in chapter 12, we have the martyrdom of the first apostle, James. So during the days of unleavened bread, a holiday tied in with the Passover, right? And this is marked by the persecution of a Roman leader and this Roman leader trying to please the Jews. I don't know if that sort of theme or that process sounds uh, familiar to you, but I couldn't help but think of the parallels to the life of Jesus, right? Jesus was questioned and threatened by religious leaders. They arrested Jesus in Luke 4.28 and they wanted to, to kill him. Um, And then, I don't know if you remember, but he miraculously just walks through the crowd and off he goes, right? And he escaped that. And then, like Saul that we have in Acts, the anger of the religious leaders grew towards Jesus to the point that they really wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the way. Then, ultimately, they had to go to Roman authority, right, to have Jesus killed. And when did this all occur? During Passover week. So Peter writes in in 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23, For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, James was called by Jesus. James walked with Jesus. James learnt from Jesus. James proclaimed Jesus. And now he has died for the name of Jesus. If you remember in in Matthew 20, James and John come along with mum to Jesus and she asks for her sons, right? To to one to sit at the left and one to sit at the right of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus ask them? He says, can you drink the cup I am about to drink? He's speaking of his death, right? And they both agreed, whether they understood what they're agreeing to or not, they both agreed. And Jesus said to them that they would indeed drink the cup that he would drink, but to sit at his right and his left was not to give. James has now drank that cup and gone to be with Jesus. Why? But why was, was Peter rescued? Why wasn't he rescued like Peter? Why was his ministry seemingly cut short? Surely God could have still used James, right? Did James do something wrong? Did the church not pray quite hard enough for him? No, I don't believe so. But I also can't say exactly why 
James was killed and Peter wasn't. But I can be confident it was God's timing for James to be with Jesus. In Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2, it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Friends, you and I, we're not called to be concerned with God's timing in things, but we are called to be faithful and to be obedient. You and I, we're not called to the results, but called to be faithful and obedient. God's the one that's in control, not you, not me. Wisby points out this, God allowed Herod to kill James, but he kept him from harming Peter. It was the throne in heaven that was in control, not the throne on earth. Again, we are called to be faithful and obedient, not concerned with the timing or the results. That's God's. So James is is killed and immediately Herod arrested Peter, intending to bring him out after Passover before the people, presumably to have a public trial and to, to then kill him. And just a word here on the Passover and and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover here referred to the combined eight-day festival. The Passover itself followed by seven days of unleavened bread. The Passover remembering God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread signifying the ridding of oneself of sin. And I thought this seems a bit ironic in a sense right now, right? The Jews are celebrating freedom from Egypt while under control of Rome. Instead of being free free from Rome, they're working with them to persecute the followers of their Messiah that they were waiting for and rejected. I was thinking of uh, why Herod would want to wait until after the Passover holiday and not just kill Peter straight away like he did James. And one commentator, he suggests three reasons, right? Herod wanted to show how scrupulously he observed Passover. Remember, he was sympathizing with with the Jews and wanted to observe all their holidays as well to show that he was on their side. He wanted to wait until, reason two, he wanted to wait until the pilgrim crowds went home in case there was a bit of a riot. And this makes sense, right? If he's wanting to please the Jews and they decided all of a sudden in favor of Peter or a disagreement broke out, he may, you know, have a right on his hand and the whole thing would have been turned on his head and he's no longer in favor. Three, he wanted to wait until he had the full attention of the Jewish population. And you can see that strategy, right? Having the focused attention of the Jewish, especially the leadership, really mattered. The religious leaders would have been occupied with engaging in the Passover and the celebrations of the time. So he wanted their full attention. If he could keep Peter secure till after that was all done, he would have the full attention of these Jewish leaders and he would able to secure their approval, right? And also, I'm sure he didn't want uh, Peter to do an Acts 5 and just disappear out of prison again. Well... What does he do to, to try and secure that? He puts four squads of guards over Peter. So one squad of guards is four, and so 16 altogether for one man. And they most likely would have rotated, right? So two chained to him and then two guarding the door. And they did this so that they would stay alert. 
And I was like, this just seems so excessive, right? Was Peter this like crazy mass murderer that had escaped prison a hundred times and was, you know, just going mental around the city? No. Uh, was Peter maybe, had he attempted to assassinate someone and so they needed to keep this really close eye on him? No. Those are the things that you would think would cause such an extreme response from Herod. Because that's time, that's money, that's taking guards, right? To, to all put into this one man. Herod was intent. And maybe he remembered and had heard the stories of, you know, the ones that had escaped from prison previously. However, it's interesting his attitude, Herod's. Instead of being, for him, a warning about persecuting the church, what does he do? He doubles down on his efforts. Herod thought he could outdo God. We know Herod, again, was this Jewish sympathizer. He would have known at least some of the stories and traditions of these guys. They were in the middle of celebrating God's rescue of his people from a tyrannical leader and nation. Does this cause Herod to stop and think, ooh, what kind of God am I opposing here? What, what am I going against in this moment? When Saul was confronted about his persecution of Jesus and the church, he was humbled, right? God humbled him. There's a contrast for you. So when you, when I am confronted with who God really is, how do I respond? Like Herod, do I double down in my sin and defiance and rebellion? Or am I humbled and submitted to God and what he has for me? It's a challenge for us. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, said the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. How did the church respond to the persecution, the death of James and the arrest of Peter? They prayed earnestly. They didn't try and break him out. They prayed. Although no doubt extremely concerned for Peter, they didn't freeze up. They prayed. It doesn't say they formed a committee of how they were going to address this persecution or this guy called Herod. They prayed. The rescue of Peter from prison, it doesn't start in verse 7 when the angel shows up. It starts in verse 5 with the church praying. Guzik writes, Much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks earnestness. Too often we almost pray with the attitude of wanting God to care about things we really don't care too much about. Earnest prayer has power, not because it in itself persuades a reluctant God. Instead, it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things God cares about. Fulfilling Jesus' promise, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. John fifteen seven. We spoke earlier about God being in control of the results and we are just called to be faithful and obedient. The church here is being faithful and obedient, bringing their concerns to God. Philippians 4, 6 tells us, do not be anxious about anything. Can you imagine, like just 
for a second. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, there's this tyrannical leader. He's killing my brothers and sisters. He's arresting them. Okay. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I have to be real with you here for a moment because I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure how you feel. But I find it hard sometimes to be prayerful in times of stress and difficulty. I think to myself, oh, I can power through it. I can fix it myself. I'll be fine. No, God wants me, God wants us as his people to be prayerful. Maybe take some time this week and consider what this means for you. How are we going as, as a church together? I mentioned before in small groups that we spend a bunch of time praying together. That is a valuable, powerful time. But how are we going as a church? How are we going as individuals with praying earnestly? May we have our desires, our passions, our concerns aligned to God's. God doesn't need us to be involved and active in his plans. He desires that we would be. And we're going to see that here in a minute with Peter. I want to read um, this, this section for you, 6 through, through 11. Um, it's just such a good story. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two trains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was, he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all the Jewish people were expecting. Now I want you to notice a, a few things, apart from just how amazing this, this whole scene is, right? Firstly is that Peter is sleeping. Second is that he's struck Third, that Peter is required to take action. And four, is that Peter realized what he has been rescued from. So, if my friend had been killed by someone and for the same reason that I'm in prison for, I'm not sure I would be sleeping so soundly. I think this shows us that Peter was at peace with both the situation and the outcome. Following on from our previous reading in Philippians, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Second Peter is then in such a deep sleep that not even this bright, shining angel wakes him up. So Peter is struck on the side to wake him up. And the guards, all this while, seem not to be savvy of what's going on or what's happening there. Just, 
there. They should have been alert, as they would have been on this rotation, right, between the, between the four squads. And they also knew the consequences of a prisoner escaping. That is, that they would suffer whatever consequence was waiting for that prisoner they were guarding. It does not tell us, right, if the guards were actually sleeping, or maybe they were just made completely oblivious of the goings-on of what was happening. Part of a miracle, right? It's hard to comprehend. It defies the natural world we, we understand, right? And we're going to see later as well on this point that Herod is struck as well. Peter struck for rescue, Herod struck for his judgment. Thirdly, Peter is required to take action. I believe the angel could have easily have just taken Peter and put him uh, you know, at the door of, of Mary's house and no worries, that's fine. But Peter's involvement is required. The angel tells him to what? Dress himself, put on his sandals, wrap his cloak around him. And if you think back to all the miracles that have been performed by Jesus, there was always action or on the part of the person the miracle was being performed for or the part of those who were with that person. So Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, but then commanded his disciples to gather up the leftovers. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and told her parents to give her something to eat. God is relational, and he wants us to be involved in what he's doing, even if it's in the ordinary. I love what Wisby says, God alone can do the extraordinary, but his people, we must do the ordinary. Number four, Peter realizes what he has been rescued from. Lastly, Peter thinks he's, he's having a vision, but then he comes to. And what does he say? Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. We live in a world that's ravaged by the fallout and the consequences of man's rebellion to God. Peter sees what Herod is doing with the Jews in the physical world, right in front of him, and what he's experiencing. But he also sees beyond that to see how God is working. I don't know if you know the song Waymaker, but it goes like this. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. So God was a light in the darkness for Peter. He worked a miracle for Peter. And Peter, he sees that God is in it all. There is a battle that is going on in the spiritual world. But I can tell you, and I'm sure Peter and even James would agree, that God's the one that's in control. So how does a church respond to all of this? Peter has been freed. He sees God has orchestrated his release miraculously. God was, uh, Peter was freed from prison, but he's having a bit of trouble getting into the prayer meeting. Right? The house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, was evidently a place of meeting for these believers. And Paul, uh, sorry, Peter rocks up wanting to tell them that their prayers, what they've been praying for, 
It's been answered. And the response is sort of threefold. First, disbelief. They tell this poor young girl, Rhoda, that she's essentially lost her mind. She's gone crazy. Then, rationalization. Well, it must be his angel. And we're not going to get into their belief on angels, but they try and rationalize it, right? They think he must be dead. And then they finally agree, all right, we're coming to the door, we'll see what's happening. And they see Peter with their own eyes, and they're just amazed to see him, right? My youngest, uh, Travis, he was born with a, with a kidney issue. And we knew the concerns prior to him being born. But when he was born, it was, it was worse than what we thought. So not only Alicia and I were, were praying, but our church, our family, everyone was, was praying. But we didn't know what the outcome was be, would be. He had a lot of ups and downs, especially in the first year and a half. And I would pray, and at times I would feel like I'm crazy to believe that he would be better or able to function normally even. Now he's, he's cruising well, albeit with one kidney, but he's cruising well. He did come good. And I remember in somewhat disbelief when we were told that he would function normally on the one kidney, and we didn't need to continue to see that surgeon anymore. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Alicia and I were amazed at the prayers of God's people and how they carried us through a difficult time. And at the end of the day, how God's hand, God's hand was in it all. I'm not sure what, what you're praying for. I'm not sure what you're going through at the moment. And I don't know what God's answer is going to be for you. But believe me when I tell you that God is working through the prayers of his people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 tells us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This section, it closes with, with Peter's response to, to his freedom and also Herod's response. And I want you to see the contrast here. Remember I said this is a, this is a chapter of contrast. So Peter acknowledges that God had rescued him. And after speaking to the church and sharing the story with them, he moves on. We're not sure exactly where, but probably Asia Minor. We also know that he continues to preach and represent Christ, and he's faithfully doing that, and he's ultimately martyred for his faith. Herod, on the other hand, he examines what has happened, and instead of seeing the power of God in it, he puts the soldiers responsible to death. Sixteen guards lose their life because instead of seeing the miraculous Herod finds the blame. When God does the miraculous, I think people respond in different ways, right? Some acknowledge what God has done and follow God. That would be Peter. Some will be skeptical, like the church's first response. And some will actively oppose it. That would be Herod. The guards even are confused as to how this was possible for Peter to escape. Like, they don't understand how this could have occurred. Herod examines the soldiers, and the word here for examine and what would often happen would include torture. 
And Herod's conclusion of his search and his examination is that the guards were at fault and he puts them to death. He can't help but think of the greatest miracle that has ever taken place, right? That's the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest prison escape, so to speak. The contrast with Peter and Herod is a picture, I think, of mankind's response. Some may acknowledge the resurrection of Christ and what that has accomplished for them and follow him. Others are going to be skeptical which will eventually lead to remaining sceptical, belief, or atheism. Or they will actively continue in their defiance towards God, which what? The wages of sin is death. Ultimately leads to death. John Piper says, The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. Like the chains that fell off Peter and the gates that opened for him, Christ has removed every obstacle and given us freedom. Freedom from being captive to our sin. Freedom from an old life. But he's also made it so that we can have joy and new life in him. And as we have that new life in him, we are to be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. So we have seen Herod's persecution and the rise of that. We have seen the first apostle being martyred. We have seen Peter arrested. We have seen the church respond in prayer. Peter released from prison. The church's prayer answered and their response. And Herod's response to Peter's freedom. And now we have this bit of a change of scene. Seems maybe a little bit odd. But Herod heads over to Tyre and Sidon. From this account in Acts, from history, and from Josephus' account as well, we can work out a bit of this background. So Tyre and, and Sidon, they, they were answering to, to Herod's jurisdiction. We're not sure exactly why they had fallen out of favor with Herod. Tyre and Sidon, they depended on, on Galilee for grain, and for that reason, they desired to make peace with Herod Agrippa. And they, we mentioned uh, our good mate Blastus, what a name, hey? Um, but uh, they may have bribed him because he, he was a trusted uh, personal servant of the king of Herod. And they wanted to work out a plan of res- reconciliation. Again, our good mate uh, Josephus, he, he, writes, he writes this of the situation. He, being Herod, put on a garment made wholly of silver, and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theatre early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun rays upon it, shone after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread an aura over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, 
For although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth only as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And then in Acts 12, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Lovely. In the introduction, I mentioned that this was a, a chapter of contrasts, and, and here's yet another one. Remember, what Peter was freed from prison, and the angel struck him on the side to wake him up. Here, an angel strikes Herod, and he's killed. Peter was in prison because he was bringing glory to God by proclaiming the name of Jesus. And Herod, on the other hand, was accepting praise from the people as though he was God. I don't think it's random that Luke, the, the author of Acts, inserts this story here of Herod's death. See, Herod has set himself up as a god or an idol. How? We've seen it in a few ways already. He's attempting to please the Jews by persecuting the church, showing that he's trying to exert his authority over what God is doing. He's killed James and the soldiers, thinking he's the one that has the power over life and death, and that's in his hands. He's proclaiming himself and ultimately accepting the people calling him a god. God punishes Herod here for his arrogance. Peter quotes Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 3.12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I wonder if Peter had Herod in mind as he wrote this at all. You might wonder, like me, What's the application here, Daniel? What on earth does this have to do with me now, sitting in Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, in the pews? You might think, well, I don't do any of those things. I'm not persecuting the church. I'm not killing people thinking I have the power to take life. I'm not parading myself around taking the praise from people as though I'm God. And I hope not. But Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Friends, there are other ways we can steal God's glory. How about doing what we want when we know God has something else for us? Every time I sin, I exert my will against God's saying, I know better than God, is stealing his glory. We are worshipping our own will instead of serving God's will. God alone is the one that deserves glory, and God alone dissolves, deserves the ultimate authority over our lives. Next, this section of changing of hands. What does this mean? For the rest of Acts. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. 
As I mentioned just quickly in the introduction, this chapter concludes the work of the church starting in Jerusalem, and we see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth as we follow Paul and Barnabas. Then, just Paul mostly, um, for the fulfillment of Acts 1a. Again, I'm going to keep smashing that theme to the ends of the earth. But where I want to conclude and what I want to draw your attention to as we wrap up is verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, James is martyred. Peter is rescued. The church is fervent in prayer. The church struggles even to believe their prayers are answered. Herod was killed for stealing the glory of God. We have seen God's mercy. We have seen God's judgment. And through all of it, through all of this craziness that's going on, just here in chapter 12, God's word is not held back, but has increased and multiplied. The enemy thinks he can stop or slow the spread of the gospel by persecution, but it has the opposite effect every time. Every time we see persecution, we see the gospel spread. God works in different ways, and we're not going to always understand those ways. We're not going to always see what God is doing in that exact time and moment. But may we, as individuals and as a church, be obedient to God, trusting the outcome and the results to Him. May we, as individuals and as a church, be fervent in prayer, committed to prayer and faithful to give God the glory in all circumstances. So obedient to God, trusting the outcome and the results to him, fervent in prayer, committed to praying, and faithful to give God glory in all circumstances. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us uh, in every way. God, I pray that we would be faithful and obedient to walk with you. God, help us to do that. We can't do that on our own and in our own strength, so we need you. Father, thank you that the Holy Spirit works that in us so that we can be faithful, we can be obedient to you. God, I pray that we would be your witnesses, God. We have been given this precious, precious gift of salvation. We have been redeemed and saved from our sin and from our old life, Lord, and we have been saved to a new life with you. So, God, I pray that we would be your faithful ambassadors, Lord. God, help us not to to steal your glory in any circumstance, Lord. Help us not to be resilient to what you want to do. God, I commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.